Well, thank you so much again for joining us this evening. Just uh, a pleasure and a joy for me to, to be doing this with you. <clears throat> so about 15 years ago, I think it was a May 1997 issue of Christianity Today, uh, a friend of mine, a uh, younger pastor in the Eagle Alliance Church in Indianapolis, sent me this, um, this one page from there. It was a, a, a review of uh, two devotional books. And this is what I read in that section, at least an extract from that. This is the person who's reviewing the book writing. While drying my hair one morning, I had an epiphany. I shoved aside the novel I'd been reading and reached for the devotional book, Walking on Water, which is one of the books she was reviewing. I positioned the book and my Bible to the left of my curling iron and started reading. In the 20 minutes that it took to blow dry and curl my hair, I had worked through scripture, devotional, and prayer. Minutes later, I was off to work, body and soul prepped to take on the day. Then the next book, all of the Psalms save four had fewer than 50 verses, which along with the meditation neatly fit my hair grooming time slot. And their heart-rending pleas for God's deliverance and soaring testimonials to God's grace were balm for the soreness of my spirit. Someday I hope I won't have to squeeze devotions into the corners of my life. For now, however, these books are a great way to get the day off and running. But I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry when I read something like that. I can sympathize. We talked about the, the tyranny of time that characterized our society. But I have coined a name for this, blow dryer devotions. <laughs> Is this likely to do anything for us? Is it likely to help our souls catch up with our bodies? I couldn't but contrast this to the delight of the psalmist in Psalm 19, for example, when he said, uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making simple people wise. The precepts of the Lord are right and bring joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant and enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure and endures forever. And the ordinances of the Lord are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And then, of course, Psalm 119, which is 176 verses in celebration of the law of the Lord. You know, if he says things like it is more valuable to me than gold and silver. They are like the heritage and the joy of my heart. Your decrees are the theme of my song. The, the law of God makes the man sing in the middle of the night. You, you put those two things together and it forces you to ask a question. Excuse me. It, it forces you to ask this question. What's gone wrong? What's missing? How do we recapture this wonder in the word of God that seemed to characterize the saints of God, at least the best of them at certain times? And that's what I'm going to talk about today, the third gyroscope that has helped me recapture wonder in the Word of God. And it all has to do with how we fundamentally see Scripture. We need to look at this book correctly for what it really is. Unless we do, I think we're doomed to blow dry devotions. And a place to start for me is to look at how we consider the function of words in our society. We think of words as vehicles for communicating information. So that, for example, if I say wristwatch and you know English, immediately something like this forms in your mind. But there's a rather complex process that went on for that to happen. The food that I ate earlier on today gave me enough energy to say the words wristwatch. That sets up vibrations in the air here. Those vibrations travel through the air and impinge on your eardrums, which then begin to oscillate. That oscillation and then converted electrical impulses would go through your brain. And if you know English, that particular impulse again creates this kind of a picture. Rather complex, all happened in an instant. Words communicate information. And once a person stops speaking, why? They've accomplished their function. And that's largely how we see words. And without our being aware of it, we have carried over that understanding of words into God's word. And so we see the, the massive number of words on the printed pages of our Bible as a whole lot of words communicating information to us. And once they have communicated that information, why their work is done? Well, if you look at it that way, it's bound to be boring. I mean, after all, how many times can you get excited about reading about David and Goliath? Especially if we've grown up in the flannel graph generation as well, you know. We know all the stories. We know what's coming. That's true of the stories of the life of Jesus. As soon as the pastor starts reading it, you know what's coming next. How can you remain excited about it if it is only the communication of information? But is that the purpose of this book? 
what does God's word say about itself? What does scripture say about scripture? And when we take a look at it, you'll see that's not primarily the way they see it, the scripture sees itself at all. For example, in the opening, again, the opening movement of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. The first page of God's word is actually the voice of God that is bringing something into being out of nothing. God said and there was. God said and there was. It's repeated throughout. So it is first of all a creative word. It's the voice of the Lord that creates something out of nothing. And then as God continues to speak, that voice continues to do two things with this created stuff. It gives shape to the shapeless, which is the work of the first three days, and then it fills that which it has shaped, that which is empty, which is the next three days. Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth was without form and void. It was shapeless and empty. And the next several verses of, of the first chapter are the voice of the Lord that shapes the shapeless and fills the empty. So that's, that's what we see at the very beginning. You move on from there to Psalm, take a psalm like Psalm 19, now the other part of the psalm that I didn't quote. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then you notice all the words that come after that. Day after day they pour forth speech. There is no place where their voice is not heard. Their sounds go out to the ends of the earth. So God's word that calls something into being out of nothing and shapes the shapeless and fills the empty is followed up by that created Entity now becomes a megaphone that broadcasts the glory of God. God creates and creation now proclaims the glory of God. Few Psalms later in Psalms 29, we see another function of God's law, of God's voice. He talks about the voice of the Lord is like thunder. The voice of the Lord twists the desert's bed, strikes the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord is a destroying word in this case. And he says, in the temple, everybody cries glory. The voice of the Lord thunders, strips the deserts bare. So it's a voice that creates, it's a voice that shapes and fills. That created, shaped, and filled universe then becomes a megaphone that declares the glory of God. And it's a voice of the Lord that also sits in judgment and destruction over its creation. As we move on from there to how God's word functions in the life of his people, we see this repeated refrain, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And again, without our being aware of it, because we think of words primarily in terms of information, the kind of picture that illustrates our normal thinking of the word of the Lord coming to someone is as if God taps somebody on the shoulder and said, hey, can you take down some dictation from me? I have some information to give to my people. Write it down. But that's not the way it happened at all. The word of the Lord was more like an invasion into their people's lives. Let me just give you a few examples. Amos. <laughs> Amos preached to the northern kingdom of Israel. And they didn't like him preaching. They said, stop preaching. Go preach someplace else. And, and, and he says, the, the lion has roared. <laughs> Who can but speak? Who cannot but speak? You remember the old Esso commercial? Some of you are old enough to remember that? Put a tiger in your tank? Well, that's sort of what we're like. He said, except I've got a lion stuck in my throat. <laughs> the word of the Lord coming to this man wasn't dictation. It was like a lion stuck in his throat. And he says, you are telling me not to preach? <laughs> when I've got a roaring lion stuck in here. Hosea's was a very different kind of experience. When the word of the Lord came to Hosea, it came in a very different form. It wasn't lying in his throat. He said, you go marry this disreputable woman. And then he said, start naming these children, Lo Ami and Lo Ruhama. I don't know when you've last heard someone named that way. You know? But what, what it was, was an acted out metaphor for God's relationship with his people Israel, whose rejection of God was like that of a woman who was leaving her husband and God was a husband who was going after him. And the children were children that carried a prophetic announcement of the destruction of the exile that was coming upon them. This man's entire domestic life became a vehicle for the voice of the Lord. God's word coming to him certainly wasn't dictation. It wasn't the conveying of information. It just took over his whole life and said, your marriage, your children, their names, how you're going to go after your wife, all of that is the word of the Lord. And then Jeremiah, one of my favorite ones. 
Now, I like Jeremiah more in one sense more than all of the other prophets. The rest of them just simply came and did the work that God told them to do. <laughs> Jeremiah complained all the time. <laughs> so I have a print of Rembrandt's painting of Jeremiah in the well in my study. You know, one moment he was just thundering the word, the next moment he said, ah, oh, if I just had a cabin out in the desert someplace, I would just leave all these people and go away. You know? Next moment he's weeping and crying for them. He complains a lot to God. And one of the times he complains to him, he said, look, the preaching of the word has brought me nothing but trouble and you've deceived me. He comes that close to blaspheming the prophet of God, calling God a deceiver. And he says in chapter 20, I think it is, I'm going to quit, or 15 maybe, I'm just going to quit. And I love, it's one of those verses that isn't there in the Bible because I could almost write the words in. Jeremiah says to God, I'm going to quit because your word brings me nothing but trouble. And God says, you want to quit? See if you can. Because in the very next verse, he says, but when I said I would not speak, your word was like a fire in my bones. <laughs> so I had to speak. It sounds like dictation. A lion in my throat takes over my whole domestic life, my marriage, my children, their names. It's a fire in my bones that keeps me speaking even when I don't want to speak. That's what the word of the Lord is. It's not information. It's an event that takes over people and compels them to speak. And then as we get to the end of the Old Testament, we have Malachi. The Israelites are back from exile. They've rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the temple but and 100 years pass after that and their worship has again become skeptical, cynical. The life has gone out of their worship. And God sends the prophet Malachi to confront them. It is in the form of a dialogue. Seven times he confronts them and seven times the skeptical majority goes back to him and says, yeah, prove it. I'm from Missouri. Show me, you know. <laughs> you have loved me. Wherein have you loved us? You've robbed me. Wherein have we robbed you? It was just insolent questioning of God. That's what God's word was doing. It was pulling people into a dialogue with them. It wasn't dictation. It wasn't information. It was conversation. And in the process, the people were getting harder and harder and harder. But there was a small minority that heard the word of the Lord and feared him and talked to one another and God took notice of them. So when we sum up everything that we learned just in the Old Testament, we get a very different picture of the word of God as not just information, but let me just trace it for you quickly what we've learned. First of all, it is a voice that calls something into existence out of nothing. It is a voice that then shapes the shapeless and fills the empty. That shaped and filled universe now becomes a megaphone that is a voice that proclaims the glory of God. It is a voice that sits in thundering judgment upon its creation. It is a voice that invades its prophets. It's, it's like a fire in their bones, a lion in their throat. It invades their whole domestic life. And in its proclamation, it pulls people into a relational dialogue that leaves them either harder or softer. How different from information. Then all of a sudden we have those blank pages in the Bible. You know, they're important. Those blank pages are important between the Old and the New Testament. It's because there's 400 years of silence. The voice has died out. They're not hearing the voice for 400 years. Until all of a sudden in Luke chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was this and this guy was this and this guy was that, he said the word of the Lord came to John in the desert. And what does it say? I write after that. What is John's first words? A voice of one crying in the wilderness. 400 years of silence has passed, but when the word of the Lord came again to a man, it was once again a voice. That equation has never changed. The word of the Lord was a voice. This time it was a voice crying in the wilderness because the beginning of the gospel was a voice crying in the wilderness. But that's, of course because he was about to prepare for the most stupendous event this world has ever seen. That voice that calls something into being out of nothing, that voice that shaped the shapeless and filled the empty, the voice that invaded Hosea's family, the voice that was a fire in Jeremiah's bones and a voice that was a lion in Amos's throat was about to become incarnate. That word was about to take incarnate shape and we would hear the audible voice of God for the first time. And the interesting thing is you look in the Bible, you will find that Jesus, the word of God, did everything that the written word of God or the spoken word of God did in the Old Testament. Did he create? <laughs> yeah, he created bread, fish, new limbs, eyes, ears, 
It was a word that created. Did it shape the shapeless and fill the empty? Talk about the lepers. Was it a voice that sat in destruction over creation only once, the fig tree? But they were amazed at how quickly the fig tree died. Was it a voice that invaded people? If you've ever seen the Zephyrelli's uh, Jesus of Nazareth, one of the most amazing scenes in that movie for me, it brings tears to my eyes every time I see it, is the calling of Levi Matthew. Here's this beady-eyed guy, you know, tax collector, used by Rome, hated by his own people. About the only consolation he had in life was the clink of the coins, you know. And here he was just collecting, raking in the coins. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And, and the camera angle looks over Jesus' shoulders so you never see his face. You only see Matthew's face. And you could see, first of all, a quizzical expression on his face. And I guess Jesus must have said to him, come follow me. You know? And then those beady eyes, suspicious. All of a sudden, there's a wrinkle, you know, the little wrinkle at the corner of the mouth and slowly a big smile begins to crease his face. He just drops the coins and he gets up and he begins to follow Jesus. You think the word was still invading people like it did Jeremiah, like it did <clears throat> Hosea, Amos? Yeah, I took a hold of a greedy tax collector, renamed him Gift of God and he wrote so to write one of the Gospels. His voice still invaded people. He called, he called two guys, James and John, fishermen, said, follow me. They left the nets and followed him right away. You ever wondered what happened to Zebedee's fishing business? <laughs> they could no more help themselves than Jeremiah could help preaching. And if you look at the last week in the life of Jesus, it was teaching in the temple daily and dialoguing. The Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the rich young ruler, everything, one after the other, coming and talking to him, in conversation with him. Every time he said something, people responded. The same skeptical majority like in Malachi. And they went away hardened. A few of them went away softened. And then think of how Jesus himself related to the Old Testament. How did he relate to it? Does information? Well, no, Isaiah chapter 50, which is one of the servant songs, gives us a clue. When it says, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know a word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. That's how he related to the word. He related to the word as a voice that spoke to him. And when you come to Hebrews chapter 10, you will find this articulated more clearly. But Jesus said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. I guess we could translate by saying you weren't interested in blow dryer devotions. Sacrifices and offering you did not desire, else I would have given it to you. But he says, A body you have prepared for me, or years you have dug out for me. It is written about me in the scroll, O God, lo, I have come to do your will. Your law is within my heart. That's how he related. Isaiah chapter 50 fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus related to the scroll, the Old Testament, as the voice of the Lord that spoke to him every day. That's why so often at the end of a busy day of ministry, he went to bed, and the disciples woke up in the morning. There were many people waiting to still be healed. They went looking for him, and he said, oh, we've got to leave them behind. I've got to go, because he was, he was already in the morning listening to the voice of the Father. So you put all of this thing together, we are able to sum up now what God's word is. God's word is not just words that communicate information. God's word is a voice of the living God that calls his people into a relational dialogue with him and in the process of that relational dialogue, it changes them one way or another. That's it. Let me say that again. God's word is not words that communicate information, but it is the voice of the Lord that speaks to us, calling us into a dialogical encounter with him, and it's the kind of dialogue that will always change us, sometimes softer, but also harder. We will never be the same after an encounter with God's word. See, you have to see it this way. This is what brought about the sea change in my own life when I began to understand the scriptures in this way. Then, 
devotions started giving way to something else altogether. That was then, where we now today, 1,500 years later. For the first 1,500 years of the church, until the invention of the printing press, most people encountered the word of God as, as a red word, not a printed word. Now, there are definite advantages in having a printed word. I'm not denying that. But it has been at a price. Because until Bibles began to be written, or God's word began to be written down and accessible, most people's encounter was by hearing the word of God read. Books had to be copied by hand. How many copies of the Bible do you think we'd have every year if every copy had to be made by hand? You certainly won't have 15 million copies published each year in hundreds of translations. Big books were valuable. They were chained to their pulpits. Because there weren't too many books around. Most people didn't know how to read. They listened to the word. You remember in Nehemiah chapter 8, they built a platform for Ezra to get up and read the word. And so at least one thing was fairly in the forefront of their thinking. This is a voice that is speaking to me. They encountered the word as a voice that was speaking to them. But the invention of the printing press changed all of that. Because you see, now we read. And the shift from reading to listening is a huge shift. There are at least four fundamental differences between reading and listening, and you'll see the practical implications of it. The first of it has to do with the issue of initiative. When you listen, you don't get the initiative. Somebody else does. So I'm walking along and said, hi, John. He's scurrilous, unless he's extremely rude. He's there. He's going to have to listen. I took the initiative, not him. The listener doesn't take the initiative. The speaker does. But if you're reading, the book is just sitting there. Ah, oh, it's 10 o'clock. I may pick up a book and read. You take the initiative. So there's an issue of initiative, first of all. Secondly, there's an issue of control. Who controls it when you're reading? You do. Whenever you feel like it or you're dozing off or whatever, you close. But... If you're listening to a voice, you don't really control it. Many of us have tried to get away from people that we'd like to go away from, right? <laughs> and you can't do it unless, again, you're incredibly rude. You're not in control. So there's initiative issues. There's control issues. Thirdly, there's attitude issues. Usually when you read, you, sit, you are sitting over the word. Very few people read like this. And it's much easier to sit in judgment Oh, that you're over. But when you're listening, even though I'm shorter than most of you in this room, right now I'm above you. And there's purpose in that. There's reason in that. You're under the word. You're not over the word of God. When you're listening, you're under it. When you're reading it, you're over it. So there's the third shift. And then the fourth one has to do with attention. <laughs> when you're reading the book, the book doesn't know whether you're paying attention or not. That's why so many times we've got to go back and read the last 10 pages, right? How many of us have had that experience? What did I read for the last 10 minutes? But when you're listening, again, unless you're really rude, the listener knows whether you're paying attention or not. You see the four fundamental shifts that have taken place. Initiative, control, attitude, attention. All, we have paid a big price. There are advantages in having the printed word, but this is what we have sacrificed. That is why we've lost sight of it as a word, because we now no longer read. Uh, in, in the reading, we're no longer listening. So we made that shift from listening to reading. The second major shift has come about as a result of the change in the concept of education. Until, historically speaking, recent times, education was primarily a matter of dialogue, disputation, and imitation. You dialogued with your teacher, you disputed and argued with your teacher, and you imitated your teacher. Uh, look, at, look at the New Testament. Look at the Gospels. Jesus hung around. They ate together, they walked together, they argued, they didn't understand, they argued with each other, he rebuked them. They were learning. But today... Education is no longer relational in its context. Somebody once defined the education process as getting material from the head of the student to the notebook of the student while bypass, so from the head of the professor to the notebook of the student while bypassing the head of the student. <laughs> it's, it becomes all about acquiring information not relating to the person. I, one of the quickest ways I can prove that is, how many times have you ever gone back to look at lecture notes of a course that you've passed and have no, don't have to take it over again? Nobody. 
can throw them all away. Thank goodness that course is finished. And recent, no, I shouldn't say recently, in, in, when my son was growing up, I had this thing driven home to me powerfully. The difference between re, an education that is relationally based and education that is simply acquiring of information. When our son got into grade nine, uh, we had parent-teacher interviews. Being a pastor, I have flexibility during the day, so I, I used to go for these encounters. And usually, almost sometimes, only, only parent there, you know. Certainly only father there in many cases. And, and I would take note that my kids would use to hate it. Dad, you're the only person who takes notes at these meetings. <laughs> so this was grade nine, and Vijay wasn't doing all I, I went to the first three, four classes, and all of them said the same thing, you know. He's a very outgoing kind of guy. He loves, he's an encourager. People liked him, and all of that was good. I said, well, how's he doing? And he was doing okay until he came to a math class. Well, average. Well, what's average? Well, he's kind of getting about 60%. I said, that's not good enough for him. He certainly can do a lot better. What's the problem? And then she told me that he kind of pushes back, argues with the teacher and things like that. So anyway, I got back home and had my conversation with him, you know. And uh, so I said, what's the matter? How come you're getting only 16 math? Well, well, then he had all his complaints about the teacher. I listened to him. I said, okay, honey, this weekend, I'm going to cancel every meeting I have except my preaching engagements, and you cancel all your social engagements. That is a death knell for him to cancel social engagements, you know. And I said, you and I are going to do math. And I'm not a teacher. I'm not professionally trained. I, mean, I have a spiritual gift of teaching, but I'm not professionally trained as a teacher. We covered nine weeks of math in four hours. <laughs> and then he worked another seven hours of stuff that I gave him to do. And in his next exam, he got 96%. How come? I'm not a good teacher. But I'm his father. He's my son. I have a relationship with him. And education that is set in the context of a relationship is effective. If it's pure transfer of information, which is all some beleaguered teachers can do, the amount of students they have in their class, there's no room to be relational at all, and certainly not in university. But most of the time, we've got remote monitors that, are, uh, that we are relating to. Well, what does that all have to do with the Bible? Same thing has happened. We're not relating to the author of this book anymore. We're just reading to get information. And those two things have become a double whammy. So we have shifted from listening in order to relate to the person to reading in order to get information. Do you see the price that we paid? No wonder we are reduced to blow-dry devotions. And we need an understanding of all of this. We need to see we are victims of these processes without even knowing them. And it ought to alarm us. So now, in the... In the time that I have left for today. The second half, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we make the shift back? So recapturing the wonder then requires making the journey back. We, we were supposed to listen in order to relate and through these two processes we become people who read in order to get information, we're gonna make the journey back. So how do we actually make the journey back? How do we turn eyes into ears? That phrase is Eugene Peterson's, the content is mine here. That's our goal. How do we turn eyes that read into ears that listen? With the same stuff. Let me just suggest three or four things and then we'll wrap up with some practical suggestions. First of all, I think faith is required. The Christian life is lived by faith. We have to believe that we are intended to hear God's word. This is not for the specialists. You cannot make the mistake of thinking, oh, this is just for the pastors and the seminary students and, and, and a few gifted elders and a few gifted teachers while the most of us are. No, it is not that at all. This is for every single Christian. You have to believe that. You guys are going through Hebrews in your, in your church, and you'll get to those latter sections in Hebrews, that famous faith passage in Hebrews chapter 11. And we know that chapter so well that we sometimes don't, ask, don't forget where it is placed. It is naturally, 11 comes between 10 and 12. That's no great mystery, right? <laughs> but what does 10 say? T chapter 10 is talking about, chapter 10 begins the, 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 the practical applications of the doctrinal section. All of chapter 9 and 18 verses of chapter 10 is, is dense, Powerful, absolutely crucial theology on the person and work of Jesus. The son of God and the priest of God. Then in chapter 10 verse 9 he says, Therefore let us draw near to enter. The whole point of this book is to so magnify Jesus as high priest that we can actually enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Chapter 12 is talking about be careful not to refuse to listen to him who speaks. Chapter 11 is placed in the middle of those two things. The invitation is to draw near. The warning is against refusing to listen. Chapter 11 is faith right in the middle. It's to, amongst other things, is to win a hearing for this, to be able to enter this invisible temple, not made with hands. 
to be able to hear. And that's for every single Christian. Isaiah 55's promise, my thoughts and my ways for your thoughts and your ways, is for all of us, not just for the experts. So you have, to, you have to begin by believing, and maybe that's the first prayer you need to pray when you come to the Bible. Lord, please help me to believe. Help me to believe that I can actually listen to this. And, and I know that. I know all kinds of people have learned to listen to the word of God, while many scholars still don't hear his voice. So that's the first thing, just believe. Secondly, expose yourself to all of it. We've had the joy of staying with Steve and Trina. I've been seeing their two grandchildren, you know. One is talking, the other one's baby that doesn't say anything. Now, have you ever wondered how many words a baby hears before they actually can turn their head when you speak their name? That doesn't happen on day one. On day one, you can shout Mary, John, Joe, all you want. They're not going to pay any attention. Because they don't know that you're talking to them. Your voice is not a word. It's just a noise. And slowly, over a period of time, various distinguishing processes takes place. General noise is then is distinguished from the noise of speech. And in the noise of speech, the noise of the primary caregiver gets distinguished before anybody else's. Whether it's a mother or somebody else. It's a primary caregiver. And then comes that amazing day when that child, when you speak that child's name, they actually turn their head. They recognize it as a personal word spoken to them. Now here's the question. How many words, and that happens approximately somewhere near the fifth or the sixth month, it varies a little bit. How many words has that child heard up till that time? Millions probably. What would you think of a parent who said, I'm really not going to speak to this child at all until they learn to speak back to me? <laughs> They'll never learn. They only learn to recognize noise as personal speech by being immersed in something that they don't understand as personal speech. The same thing is true. In the beginning, it is just a mass of information. Doesn't matter. You need to expose yourself to all of it because it is by immersing yourself in this word of God that it will eventually become a personal word to you and it will take a while. It will take a while. Exposure becomes absolutely important. That's why one of the recurring metaphors in the Bible on how we have to interact with it is eat the book. Jeremiah was told, he said, when your words came, I ate them with delight. Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll, and John was told to eat the scroll. But because when we eat something, we kind of masticate it, digest it, swallow it, mixes with the digestive juices in our bodies. All the nutrients are extracted, and then they go to build up the tissues and, and the organs and things like that. Isn't it amazing that kids do this naturally? They literally eat books. That's why we make them a plastic, right? <laughs> but somewhere along the process, we stop. But the metaphor for scripture is eat the book. Just take it all in. Another metaphor that has increasingly become my favorite one. I owe this to N.T. Wright. He said, learn to see this book as, as a script. Of a, of a five act play. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three is God calling a nation, Israel, who were supposed, who through them he was supposed to set the world right, but they became part of a problem instead of the solution. Act four is Jesus, one Israelite through whom God did what all Israel was supposed to do. And act five, scene one, is the writing of the story of Jesus in the Gospels and the New Testament. And you and I are living in act five, scene two. But here's the thing. If it is a five-act play, we've got to know all of it. If any of you have acted in any plays at all, what's the first thing the play producer asks you to do? The whole cast shows up and everybody reads the whole play, right? They read the script. What would happen if somebody at the end of that reading said, oh, I see, I don't show up till act four, scene one, so call me when the rehearsals come for act four, scene one. They won't call you at all. No, everybody has to be there. Why? Because even though you are only playing a role in act four, you will miss the cues to play it properly if you don't know the first three acts very well. That's exactly the way it is with us. We are living in act five, scene two. And if you're going to get our cues right to live wisely and live well today, we need immersion in the whole script. So whether it's eating the book, whether it's a five-act play, whatever metaphor works for you, the, the principle is we're learning to listen to a language. We're learning to listen to a voice. And therefore, immersion in his words are important to us. 
And so learn to read all of it, and I'll come back later on and wrap it up with some practical suggestions of how you might want to do it. But exposure, believing first of all, exposure is second. Then the third element is also important. As you continue speaking to that child who now knows what her or his name is, they still don't say anything, except a few gurgles here and there that maybe the mother can understand. Certainly the, little, the younger siblings, they understand. The mother needs it. Everybody else has to have it interpreted. But then comes that amazing day, and all of us who raise children know that, when out of nowhere comes a complete sentence. Perfect syntax, grammar, everything. Where did they learn? They haven't gone to school yet. They don't know anything about prefix and suffixes and predicates and subjects. They know it all. Everything comes out. Why? You see, this immersion now takes you to a second stage. The sa and by the way, here's another thing. When, if that child has been immersed in English, how likely is it that the first words that come out of their mouth is German? No, they speak in exactly the language in which was immersed. The child then begins to speak back. That's the next natural stage in here. Immersion in this, in this language of God is slowly forming syntax and shape within us so that we then begin to speak back to God in the words that he spoke to us. That's, see, now we're beginning to relate. Now this word is beginning to do its function. It's not information, but it's a voice that speaks to us, and all the while inside it is slowly training us to able to speak back to him in that same language. And by the way, you know that when a child gets to that point, a relationship has gone to a whole new level. I mean, we, we enjoy the babies when they can't say anything to us. But once that child starts talking, it would be tragedy to have to go back. Because now that relationship has gone to us. That's, that's the way it is. You will be forgive, you'll forget blow-dryer devotions for the rest of your life once you begin to get a little bit of a taste of this two-way dialogue with God. And so learn to respond back to God. There are many, many things we can say about prayer. There are hundreds of books written about prayer. But if I have to summarize the most important thing about prayer that I have learned, it is this. Prayer is not initiating speech. It is responsive speech. God speaks first, we speak back to him. And we speak back to him by taking our cues from what he says to us. I mean, again, can you just think for a moment about how normal conversation goes? So let's say somebody comes to me and says, hey, I like your sweater. What would you think if I said to him, I don't like the color of your shoes? Or what time did you come here to the meeting tonight? Something didn't connect. On the other hand, if he said, I like your sweater, I could say many things about it. I could say, well, what do you like about it? Or, thanks for the compliment. Or, no one's ever noticed before. Three completely different responses, but they would all be logically appropriate responses to what he said, whereas the first one wouldn't. And all human conversations are like that. We take our cues from what the person is saying to us. We don't speak disjointed stuff, and yet all of a sudden when it comes to reading God's word, we read, do a reading for today, close it up, and now I have to pray. And the prayer has nothing to do with what you read. We don't relate to any human being like that. Why is it that we relate to God like that? No wonder our devotional lives are so boring. No, the whole purpose of the reading, the immersion, is so you can hear from him, so you can take your cues from what he is saying. And by the way, just like I used in that simple example, that doesn't mean it's going to be rote prayer. There are a million responses you can make to God. Now, I'll illustrate that to you in a few moments, how the same text of Scripture can call forth radically different responses on different days, like real dialogue does. That's why the story of David and Goliath will not be boring for 40 years because it's not giving you information. You never know how he's going to pull you into dialogue on any particular day as you read something like that. You see, it's taking the initiative, not you. This is not about careful, exegetical study. That has a very important place. I do it for a living and because it's my joy. And it also becomes fuel for conversation. But you don't have to be limited by your lack of knowledge in those things. Immersion will train you to hear that voice and you will be able to speak back in the same language. Let, let me give you an illustration because you, ultimately you have to see how this works. Now at this point, immediately we run into a problem. The problem is simply, precisely because it is relational, how am I going to relate, how am I going to communicate it to you, what it's like? It's sort of like when a husband or a wife goes away to a conference and the, a spouse isn't there uh, and they come back and say, how was it? Really good. Yeah? Is that all you're going to say? 
yeah, but how can I possibly explain it to you? Well, sometimes it can be just laziness on our part. Sometimes it really is an actual limitation when you've experienced so much. Like if Sham weren't here all this whole week and she said, how is it to stay with Steve, Steve and Trina? What's that church like? How would I ever be able to capture what we have enjoyed and been blessed by? I couldn't do it. So in a way I'm limited, but I'm gonna try my best because you need to get some sense of how this thing works. Okay, I'm gonna use Psalm 115 just as an illustration because it's, it's, it actually happened this way in my life where the same text of scripture ended up in two very different conversations. It begins by saying, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heavens and he does all he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throats. And this one morning I was walking in this little ravine next to my house where when the weather permits I do a lot of, I do my prayer walking there and I was reading it and that morning this section became the voice of the Lord to me although it was talking about all the things the idols don't have what I heard God say to me that morning was I'm not an idol. I have all those things. (laughs) And you know that day my prayer wasn't asking him for anything it was just worship. So I prayed something like this, and this is where it gets difficult, because I'm trying to report to you on a conversation that I had with somebody else. I said, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you have a mouth and you can speak. That This morning, I'm not speaking to someone who's dumb, but I can expect to go away today from this encounter, actually having heard you say something to me. Thank you so much that you are a God who speaks. And I thank you that you have eyes that can see, that you can look into my heart right now and you can see things that I cannot see. I wouldn't even know what to ask you probably, but I thank you so much that you can see what's in there today. Sometimes I'm not even too sure whether I'm worthy to come into your presence. I don't know whether my life today is a life of faith that satisfies you or not, but I thank you so much that you see so much more accurately and so much better than I can see. I thank you, Lord, that you have years, but here, that I am so thankful that everything I say to you this morning that you can actually hear, that you are there. Can I just break from this for a moment because one morning I was walking in the ravine and praying and there's this big guy, big burly guy that was coming towards me on a bicycle. Um, I'm telling you, sometimes you're alone in the ravine. Anyway, he went past me and all of a sudden he turns to me and says, why'd you call me a moron? (laughs) I said, I didn't. Yes, you did. Who were you talking to? There's nobody else here but you and me. I heard you talking, it must be me. Anyway, I, I escaped without any harm that day. <laughs> but I suddenly realized, of course they don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> because I'm talking to a God who's got ears. And I'm talking confidently that he can hear everything that I'm saying. And then, Lord, I thank you that you have a nose. What do you do with God who has a nose and smells? I'll tell you what God did that me. <laughs> It, it reminded me of my favorite restaurant, which is no longer there in India. As soon as I, it's an Indian restaurant. As soon as I walk into that restaurant, there's just this amazing uh, wafting of the most magnificent odors. And, and I'm beginning to anticipate the pleasure of eating. All that picture came rushing to my mind. I said, Lord, thank you that you are a God who actually appreciates what I'm doing this morning. That, that my offering is rising up as a sweet fragrance. That you are pleased with the fact that I'm coming into your presence. That you have a nose that smells. And then, Lord... You have, thank you that you have hands that feel. And when I was praying that, and this is what the Holy Spirit will do at times, God brought to my mind a story that I had read from Lloyd John Ogilvie about a blind Middle Eastern shepherd. This, this blind man could tell every sheep that he had individually just by rubbing his hands over their faces. And God brought that whole picture to my mind. That's when the tears started flowing down my eyes. I said, God, thank you that even now you are a God who has hands and you can just rub your hands over my face. And I thank you that you know me individually apart from the 5.6 billion people that there are in this earth. You know every bump, every scar, everything about me that I don't like, everything about me that I do like. Thank you that I have a God who has hands and who can feel. And then finally, they do not make a sound in their throat. I said, God, I thank you that you have a throat. You can roar when you need to. And I thank you that your word is powerful enough that can reverberate through my whole being and make my whole life come into harmony with your word. I don't know how long all that took, but it was all worship that I didn't ask him for one thing. 
Remember we learned last night, worship is our response to God's self-revelation. All he revealed himself to me was that's the kind of God he was. Now, now to show you how the same text of scripture can be a completely different conversation another day, another time I was reading through it, and now of course, now I can hardly wait to come to Psalm 115 in my Bible reading. Because I love to talk to this God who is like this. And I never know when I'm going to come to Psalm 115. By the way, that's the other amazing thing about reading through the Bible regularly, is that you will read the same thing, but you, will not, you may be in a different place altogether. You may be in a different country. I've read the same text in India, and I've read it in, in Canada, and it gives you completely different dialogues with God at times. That's why it never gets boring if you look at it this way. So the next time I was reading the same thing, and then I was struck by verse 8. Those who make them become like them. And this time I was struck by the fact that God was saying to me, if you worship me, you're going to become like this. So that day my prayers were completely different. So I said, Lord, thank you that because you have a mouth and speak, I have a mouth that speaks. And so I took some time to pray for my preaching ministry that was coming that particular week. Then... I said, you have eyes that can see, which means I can have eyes that I can see. So make me the kind of pastor who can look beyond the surface, deep into what a person's really like on the inside that I might be able to speak to them. Give me understanding. They have ears, but do not hear. I have ears and I can hear. God, give me the kind of ears to be able to listen to the cry of a person's heart and speak to what their real needs are, not just what I'm hearing them say. Uh, Lord, you have a nose that can smell I can have a nose that can smell. Make me the kind of man that appreciates what people do for me, that they might know that I'm a thankful, gracious man. Do, do you see how this works? This state was completely different. This state wasn't worship. This state was all intercession because of another verse that said, you're going to become like me. And I could take you through this, through dozens and dozens and dozens of scripture like this. That's what I mean. Are you getting some idea of how this works? Why thinking about it as a voice and then beginning to immerse yourself in it, you're going through the same processes that babies are going through, immersion and then speaking back to God. So let me just close by giving you an invitation. Suggest some of these things. First of all, get it, make a commitment to just start reading the Bible. Read it from cover to cover and guess, you know what? It doesn't matter whether you don't understand. The whole point is not about understanding in the beginning. It's about immersion. It's about learning a new language. You're just like a baby. Think of yourself as a baby immersing yourself in the language of God. And my suggestion is also to adopt a reading program that doesn't take you sequentially because every, most resolutions to read the Bible die at the end of Exodus and into Leviticus. <laughs> Even though you've been through an amazing series on Leviticus in this church, I know that. But just reading through four or five chapters every day of that, there's severe test of any resolution to read through the Bible. <laughs> so I read through the Bible that makes, has me reading in four different places at the same time. Then I only get to read one chapter in Leviticus. But I also know that Romans is coming or Psalms is coming and Proverbs is coming. Whatever it is, do, do vary the sequence. I read through the chronological Bible one year. Another year I just changed the translation. Uh, this year, I'm, one, one year I read through the Bible in two years, so I was reading different sections. When you switch to the chronological Bible, I was reading Job in January. That was a strange experience to begin the new year reading Job. Normally, I don't get to it till September. But you see, you're in a different frame of mind. I'm in a different ministry cycle in January than I'm in September. Job speaks to you differently in January than he does in September. So keep varying the sequences, you know, and you'll keep hearing it. So just so read. That's number one. Secondly... As you read, don't make any effort. You're not going to make, remember the initiation is his. It's not up to you to come up with clever things. Don't be anxious about it. Do you know any baby that is anxious about learning language? All kinds of adults are. <laughs> Every adult who has to learn as a missionary, learn a second language, or there are all kinds of anxiety. But no baby is ever anxious about learning language. So don't be anxious about it. Just Immerse yourself and be attentive. Be attentive to anything that strikes you as initiating speech. Look for some things like this. Sometimes it's a promise that might grip your heart. In which case, response is to claim the promise. Maybe thank God for the promise. Maybe claim it for somebody else. It could be intercession. It could be thanksgiving. Any one of those things could be appropriate response. It might be a verse of scripture that convicts you. In which case, repentance is the appropriate response. And maybe restitution might be involved. Other times it's a command to act. In which case you might need to pray for the Holy Spirit to remind you. You need to pray for the strength to be able to overcome fear or whatever else may be in the way of it. But you don't have to be looking for it. 
Just be in the right stance and be aware and it will strike you. It has power to grip your heart. All the power resides in God, not in you and not in me. He wants a submissive spirit that is that willing to believe. We have to come to him in faith. Because apart, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But when you come to him in faith, he will speak. And so when he does, respond, pray. And if you find this difficult in the beginning, not just the prayers that are already written down as prayers, the Psalms are full of them. Most Christians learn to pray through the Psalms until the 20th century. They are already written in the first person. And there are other prayers in the Old and the New Testament. So if in your reading you come across a prayer and say, well, I just need to pray that one prayer. Just open your Bible and just repeat it. And don't worry about it being mechanical at first. Children, you learn by repetition. You learn by imitation. And you could, you could do worse than imitate the prayers in the Bible. That's how our children learn to pray. I remember when our granddaughter, Rebecca, was 18 months old or 20 months. She was fairly early into articulation. And one day she was walking behind and she said to Sham, Grandma, mommy calls me a negotiator. <laughs> she was 18. And what does she know? She doesn't know anything about the word negotiation. But that's how she learned. And she's very, very good in language too. Just by imitating. So by all means, imitate. Imitate the prayers of others. Hang around with people who know how to pray. I remember in one of the earliest discipleship groups that we were in, these five or six people, they were just making their journey back out of a very legalistic church experience to a life of faith in Christ. And in our Bible study group, while I, while I taught them a lot of perspective, they heard Sham pray once a week. And today he prays through the Psalms. He's, he's involved in a very difficult ministry situation. He'll often say, she's the one who taught me how to pray through the Psalms. Not by any formal class, just by hanging around somebody who knows how to pray. So as you learn to pray, hang around people. Do this together as a group and see what happens. Pray the Psalms together in community. See what happens. And then lastly, this is important. You need to persevere. You have to think in terms of months, years, and decades, not days and weeks. When I taught this material, first of all, to a, in, a, in a pastor's group, uh, at the end of, it was a three-year training program. They came back at the same time every year. Uh, this was all first-year material. And he came back at the second year. He said, after 10 months, he said, I'm beginning to hear a sentence from God. Today, he has taken all this material, developed it. He's teaching and training hundreds of people. in that. So think in terms of months, years, and decades, not in terms of days and weeks. 